Amen. Amen. It's uh, good to be with you, like Jake said, one last time this morning. Um, As the guys kind of pack up back here, I I would love to just take a minute and uh, maybe hear from some of you. If you would be so bold, if you'd be willing for just a second maybe to lift your voice and give us like a, give us like a 10 second testimony, and specifically I'd love to hear from you, what is something that God is teaching you or showing you, uh, what is something he has taught you or shown you during our time together this weekend? It can literally be one sentence. I wonder if you would just raise your hand maybe and, and shout something out as an encouragement to everyone else here. What, what is God doing in your life? What is he teaching you? What is he showing you? Would you be willing to share something with me? Come on, someone be bold. Put your hand up. What is God teaching you over the course of this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's great. God is at work no matter what. I saw a couple other hands. Yeah, back here, nice and loud. Yeah. It's so good. How about over here? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Power of community, the power of being together. What else? Yeah, right here. Abide in Him and not yourself. It's great. Yeah. Bear fruit and look like Jesus. Come on. His plan is better than yours. Yeah, it is. Praise God. What else? A few more. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's great, man. Yes. He's your life source. Yes, He is. A couple more. Yeah. Yeah, great, to want what he wants, yeah. Say that one more time. Bearing fruit is more than just acts of service, yeah, it's great, yeah. Yeah, it's great, yeah. Yeah. It's great. Be just being mindful of God. So good. A couple more. Yeah. Yeah, he does. So good. Yeah. Last two right here. He'll always make a way. Yeah, so good. Thank you guys for sharing with me. That's super encouraging. I hope it's an encouragement to you. Uh, before we jump in one last time to God's word, why don't you just join me and let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, it is such a privilege and a joy to be gathered with your people, to have the gift of your word, uh, and even as we've just heard, to be ministered to by you, to be loved by you, to be taught by you. God, I thank you that you are so Uh, personally and intimately involved in all of the lives that are in this room. Um, God, you don't have kind of a general um, attention for us. You have a very specific care for us. And your word says that you knit us together in our mother's womb, that you know every hair on our head, and that you have numbered all of our days when as yet not one of them was lived. 
And so I thank you, God, that you, you see us, you care about us, and you are committed when we belong to you to helping us walk in obedience, to helping us grow to look more like Jesus, and to uh, Holy Spirit sanctifying us from the inside out. And so I pray that you would do that well beyond this weekend. I pray that you would use this one last time we have together in your word to continue the work that you have already begun. And as we go home today, God, I pray that you would sustain this great work and even accelerate it and increase it as we continue to trust you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Well, let's go to John 15 one last time. We've covered this idea all weekend that Jesus is the only one who gives the blessings of true spiritual life. We began the weekend by talking about all of the things that we long for and look for and how so often we look for them in all of the wrong places. The true joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and abundance that our soul craves, we look for it in all these other places, in money, in relationships, in people, in achievement, in accolades, in jobs, in material things. And yet what we're learning as we study this metaphor that Jesus gave on the last night of his life on earth to his nearest disciples is that we're learning that Jesus is the only one who can give us what our souls truly long for, the deep and lasting, the true eternal life that you and I were made to crave is only available through Jesus. And he's been using this metaphor of a vine which carries and channels the nutrients and the life that God provides, and you and I as the branches that are connected to that vine, and the Father as the vine dresser who tends the connection and the relationship that we have as he oversees the vineyard. And this morning as we finish, we've been covering uh, nine blessings that come to us by way of abiding. Nine of these unique blessings that only belong to those that are connected to Jesus in life-giving relationship. And we've covered three uh, in, in each of the sessions. And for this final session, we have three more. And so as we begin, I just want to read John 15. And I want to read once again this entire section. I've been so thankful every time to focus our minds and our hearts and our attention on the word of God and to let it wash over us and renew our mind as we hear uh, from the very heart of our creator. So let's get our eyes on John 15, beginning in verse 1. And then remember as we read, this is the word of God. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. Okay, let's finish with three more blessings, the three final blessings that we have through connection to Christ. We'll unpack them like this. When I'm connected to Christ, I have, first, when I'm connected to Christ, I have a loving relationship to enjoy. A loving relationship to enjoy. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. I think in the world that we live in, we have been kind of conditioned to believe that it is our performance that earns love from other people. This is, this is so often the way that our world works. We have to look a certain way. We have to do certain things. We have to act in a certain manner. And if and only if we do those things, then we will receive love from people. And yet, what is being given to us here is the undeserved, unearned, gracious gift of God's love for his people. And the way that it's described here is like, If you stop for just a moment and think about what's being said here, it is absolutely mind-boggling. Like, I know sometimes we read the Bible and we act like it's casual and we kind of just we kind of just like scan over the words like, it's no big deal. Yeah, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. But just stop for a second and think about what is being said there. Think about this mind-blowing truth. There's a, there's a comparison here. Jesus wants to describe what his love for his people is like, and he uses as his primary analogy of what that love is like the love that he has received from the Father. So he says, as the Father has loved me, so, what he says is, just like that, I have loved you. Now, this is this is insane. What he's saying is that the, the kind of love that is shared between the members of our triune God, the Father, the Son specifically, but also the Spirit, is the same kind of love that God has for you. So just think for a moment, if you can, if you can put your theology cap on, think for a moment about how the Father has been loving the Son for all eternity. Right? The Bible reveals that God is triune in his nature. He is one God, and yet he is three persons. And he has existed for all time and eternity in that tri-personal state. I believe this is one of the reasons that the Bible can describe the eternal God as love. Right, First John chapter 4 says that God is love. You've probably heard that before. But love requires a subject and an object in order to be love. If love has nowhere to go, if love has nowhere to land, it is not love. And so with your theology caps on, think for just a moment about how in all of eternity past, before creation existed, before there was the solar system or the earth or humankind or trees or mountains, before there was anything, before the beginnings began, when there was only God in perfectly pure, totally Um, present, indestructible, never-ending Trinitarian love, the Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Spirit, and the Spirit was loving the Father. There were these loving relationships that existed within God himself before anything ever existed. 
And if you think about all the ways in our world that love gets kind of like distorted or corrupted or twisted, right? Sometimes love is selfish. Sometimes we, we call it love, but what we really mean is lust. Sometimes it's just actually selfishness projected onto another person. Sometimes we only love people because of what they can do for us. Love gets corrupted and twisted by sin. But imagine an eternally perfect and pure version of love that is totally uncorrupted by any of the sin and the twistedness that we have. And imagine that love being given from the Father to the Son for all time and eternity. And Jesus now saying, that is the kind of love that I give to you. I mean, that's, that's, that's insane if you just stop and think about it for a moment. The way that the Father has been loving the Son for all of eternity is now the way that the Son loves you. That's like... That's incredible. And this is the kind of love that we are invited into. Not a love that is corrupt, not a love that is selfish, not a love that is short-sighted, but a love that is perfect, that is eternal, that is indestructible, that can never be taken away from us. And, and our triune God is inviting us to share in the love that he has had with himself for all time and eternity. And now maybe... Maybe for you, that still, that feels abstract. You're like, that sounds good, but it sounds very philosophical and very weird and very out there. And if you, if you ever struggle to know what the eternal, perfect, pure love of God looks like for you, because maybe you walk into the room today and the last thing you feel is that God loves you. Maybe the circumstances of your life, the internal realities of your life, the broken relationships of your life, the suffering of your life have somehow along the way convinced you that God feels a lot of things for you, but love is not one of them. And if that's you, if this feels abstract or if this feels distant or if this feels unreal to you, I would plead with you today to take a look at the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever want to know how much God loves you, just look at the cross. When Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, Jesus also says, two chapters earlier in John 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends, for his brothers. Jesus Christ loves you so much that being perfectly pure and innocent on his own, having no debt to pay, having no penalty to wash away, being the Lamb of God, spotless completely, he went to the cross of his own volition in obedience to the Father's will in order that he might pay for the debt that you had incurred. And he shed his blood, not only being brutally physically tortured as he was whipped and mocked and spit on and then driven through with nails and hung on a beam of wood to suffocate, but far worse than that, to bear the full weight of his father's fury for all of the rebellion of all of his people for all time. He suffered under the weight of hell and God's judgment, and he did it all so that you wouldn't have to. That's how much he loves you. That's how, that's, that's how deep and how wide and how, how staggering and how incredible his love is for you. He loves you. And he loves you with a perfectly pure, eternal, unchangeable love. 
And so what that means is that his disposition towards you, the way he feels about you, is no longer, it is no longer wrath, it is no longer judgment, it is no longer separation or distance, it is now affectionate relationship. <laughs> the reason that the cross happened is so that God could take people that were separated from him and bring them in near to him. Because the Bible says things about God like he is of purer eyes to even look upon sin. That he will not be in the presence of sin. And so what he does is he pays the cost of his very own son to purge and to take away and to cleanse the sin from his people so that he can welcome them into his presence and into loving relationship with him for all of time and eternity. And this is the privilege. This is the blessing that you and I have when we abide in Christ, that we know his love. And that's why this command at the end of verse 9 is so potent. He says, abide in my love. He doesn't just say as a statement of fact, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. He doesn't stop there. Then he gives a command, abide in my love. We've already talked about how abiding means to remain, to stay. So I think the command here is Similar to the command in the book of Jude, which says in verse 21, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God, which I think means this. When we're told to abide in his love, to keep ourselves in his love, I think what's being said is that we need to perpetually pursue and live in a state of mind where we remind ourselves and we truly believe and we live as if the creator and sustainer of all things cares about us, that he sees us, that he knows us, that he loves us. Keep yourself in the love of God. Abide in the love of God, which means make your home, set up shop, stick around in the love of God and refuse to budge off of it. Refuse to wander or to drift or to go into some other way of thinking like God must feel this way about me or God must, God must not like me these days because of what's going on in my life, but rather keep yourself in the love of God. Remind yourself, God loves me. He sees me. He knows me. He is for me. He cares about me. Keep yourself in the love of God. Abide in the love of God. Believe that it is true and live like it is true. And when you do, man, how much, how much hope and security and confidence is, and joy is found, even in human terms, from believing that someone loves you. <laughs> like, think about it. Like, when you're a little kid, you don't care about the stock market. You don't care about like what's going on in the agricultural industry. You don't care about you don't care about all these like massive problems and wars and things going on in the world. Not that those aren't important, but what you really care about when you're a kid is like, does my mom and dad love me? And that's where you actually find security and joy and stability because you were made to long for that. And even as you grow, that's what, that's what can keep you afloat oftentimes. When it feels like the circumstances of your life are crumbling, but you have secure, loving relationship with people, it can keep you, your soul steady. And so it is in your relationship with God. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's going on, if you are deep down in your bones, if you're convinced that the one who spoke the universe into existence loves you, you'll be good. You'll be good. You can make it through anything. If God loves me, I'm good. I'm good. I can rest. I can go to bed tonight, and I will sleep like a baby 
no matter what's going on in my life. Because, why? Because God loves me. And I am going to work to keep myself in that love, to abide in his love. When I'm connected to Christ, I have a loving relationship to enjoy. I, I just, man, if I could look each one of you in the eyes, I would just want to say to you, do you believe? Do you believe that God loves you? He loves you. And I know even in a room like this, I'm talking to a lot of people. And so it's easy to hear that statement in general terms, like God loves y'all, kind of this like faceless group of people. But I want to tell you, God loves you individually. He loves you personally. He knows you. He, he is intimately invested in the circumstances and situations and feelings and trajectory of your life. He loves you individually. Believe that. When I'm connected to Christ, I have a loving relationship to enjoy. Number two, when I'm connected to Christ, I have an obedient Savior to imitate. An obedient Savior to imitate. Verse 10 says, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If abiding in the love of God still feels too abstract to be helpful for you, Jesus here is going to make it very concrete. And here's how he makes it concrete. He says, if you abide in my love, what it will look like is you will do what I have commanded you to do. And this is, this is a repeated, frequent, crystal clear revelation in the New Testament. This happens over and over and over and over again. Jesus says things like this. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things that I command? So I'll just say it this way. Somewhere along the line, we developed this idea that we could, quote-unquote, love God and we could disregard everything he told us to do. And that category does not exist in your Bible. If you're functioning in that way or someone you know is functioning in that way and you're like, yeah, of course I love God. I believe in God. I'm just not interested in doing anything he commanded me to do. And I know that sounds like a caricature, and most people wouldn't have the guts to say it that plainly, but, but a lot of people live that way. They're like, yeah, I love God. Yeah, I mean, Jesus died for my sins and all this stuff, but I mean, I'm the boss of my own life. I pay no regard to the commands of God. God has told me, don't do that, and, and I do those things. And God has commanded me to do this, and I'm not interested in doing that. I decide what I want to do for my life. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my destiny. I am the one sailing this ship. I am in charge. I'm the head honcho. So I decide how I will live my own life, and I'm just trusting God for some weird version of like fire insurance. I love him, but I'm not sure how you're supposed to know that I love him because... There's nothing I actually do in my life that reflects that I care about this person. And if you just translated that, like if you just translated that to a human relationship, even that would make no sense whatsoever. Like can you imagine a world in which your, your spouse, like for instance, if I'm like, yeah, I love my wife, Rachel, and every single time she asks me to do something, I, I ignore her completely. How do you think that would go in a marriage? 
you'd probably say, hey, I'm just looking at the empirical evidence of your life. Turns out you don't love your wife at all. It's not because the doing of the things that she asked me to do is the love. It's simply that the doing of the things that she asked me to do indicates the fact that I love her, right? It's an evidence of the fact that I love her. When my wife asks for help or asks me for a favor, asks me to do something, I am inclined to say yes. Why? Because I love her. And so the way that you know that I love my wife is because I am often serving her and doing things that she is asking me to do. And so it is with God. The, the love of God and the obedience to the commands of God are so intricately connected in the scriptures that they cannot actually be separated. Love is not merely a warm, fuzzy feeling that you have for God. It is evidenced and displayed in your obedience to God's commands. So clear here. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And now, what, what Jesus says here is that he is our example in this kind of obedience. This is so helpful. He says, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So our ultimate example of what this obedience looks like is Jesus himself. Now, sometimes examples can feel more discouraging than helpful. And, and here's how I know. Because like just about a year ago or so, I got really into running and, and I'm still really into running. I'm like strangely obsessed with it. In fact, if it was like two years ago, I probably would have stood on this stage and publicly mocked runners. Like I would have been like, hey, who's a runner in the house? If you raised your hand, I would have just made fun of you. Because I'm like, you have chosen the most aggressively boring and monotonous form of physical fitness that is possible to choose I'm like, you know weights exist? You know mountains are things? You know there's like CrossFit and like shake weights? I mean, anything more fun than running. Like you do anything more fun than running. And now, inexplicably, I have become what I once despised. I just love running. I'm like, I'm flat out obsessed with running. And you gotta love like the social media algorithms. You know are like the social media overlords have got something figured out because as soon as you start to like something, it's just like, like all over your feed. You know what I'm talking about? Is it just me? No, it's, it's you guys too. So I started seeing all this like running content on Instagram. I'd be like scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I'm like, I'm like watching all these like running influencers. And sometimes, sometimes their examples were more demoralizing than encouraging to me. It'd be like, there's like some, some girl who's like five foot four and, and she's like, come run 10 miles with me. And she runs like five minute miles for 10 miles. And I'm like, I will never be able to do that. I don't know how you're doing that, but that feels way beyond my grasp and way beyond my athletic potential. Now, this is, this is not what the example of Jesus is for us. It is not intended to discourage us or demoralize us because Sometimes, right, we look at Jesus and we're like, oh, he's just perfect, you know. He had it on automatic. It was just easy because he's God and so he obeyed. And yet the consistent witness of the scriptures is not that Jesus' obedience was automatic so it doesn't mean anything. Jesus was legitimately, he was fully a human being. And so he was led by the Spirit as he battled against the temptations of the enemy, consistently choosing to obey the Lord because he loved his Father and wanted to accomplish the mission that he had been given. 
And in so doing, he has become not only our Savior that rescues us from sin, but our example of what it looks like to trust and obey God. He is our example, and he is also the empowerment for us to follow that example. This is, this is so helpful. Because what this means, at the very least, is that God has not asked us to do something that he himself has not done. Sometimes we don't, we don't respect leaders who say, do as I say, not as I do. You know what I'm talking about? You have like a boss who just slacks off all day, and they're like, why aren't you working harder, man? And you're looking at them like, are you, are you serious? It's a do as I say, not as I do type of thing. And the one thing you will never be able to accuse God of is doing that. God has become human in Jesus Christ, and he has obeyed the law to the fullest. And he has done everything that we are required to do but have so often failed to do, and he has done it so that his perfect righteousness might be credited to our account through faith. And yet what he does here, right, as God calls us to obey him, he's not merely calling us to this moralistic behavior modification. Jesus came to earth. He obeyed the law with his perfect track record. He went to the cross and died, paying the penalty for our sin. And then he conquered death in the power of the resurrection so that when we, by faith, turn away from our sin and place our trust in him, we are made new. Our, our old man is, has passed away. He is crucified. We are made into a new creation, and we are renewed once again after the image of our creator. So that Jesus' example is not just this demoralizing carrot on a stick that we will never reach. It is the very power to become what he has made us to be. This is, this is incredible. It is our obedient savior that we have the privilege to imitate. If you remember, if you're familiar with the gospel of John at all, you'll know that in chapter 14... Right along with him saying, if, if you love me, then you will obey my commands. Like the very next verse in John chapter 14 is him saying, and I will give you a helper. <laughs> it's almost as if he knew like this is going to be really hard for you. And so I'm going to give you all the resources you need. And I'm going to send my very spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to take up residence in you, to lead you, to convict you, to clarify for you, to illuminate your, the word, to draw you forward, to gift you, to empower you, to call you. On all of that, we have from God. Now, the last thing I'll say is this. We just spent a bunch of time talking about the love of God, and then we spent some time talking about the commands of God. And I think far too often what we do is we separate the two of them. We separate the love of God from the commands of God. And we think like, well, when God is loving us, he's just going to kind of like feel some feelings towards us and let us do whatever we want to do. And when God is giving commands to us, he's kind of being like a bit of a, a dictator. Like he just is on a power trip and he wants to tell us what to do. So he gives us commands. And yet the thing that I want to bring to you is what this text so clearly reveals is that the, the love of God and the commands of God are always related. In fact, very often, one of the primary ways that God loves you is by giving you commands. 
He is loving you by giving you commands to obey. Why? Because he is wise and he is good. His commandments are an expression of his love for you because he built the world that you live in. He knows what is good for you. And so when he commands you not to do something, it's not because it would be a really good thing. He, when, he, when he prohibits something, it's because it would hurt you. And when he commands something, it is because it's for your good. Because he is a loving, wise, heavenly father and he knows what is best so he tells you yes he tells you how to live and how to act and how to speak and how to move not because he's like a tyrant and just wants to control you but because he is a father and he is loving you it's like a a little kid you ever had this moment like do you remember when you were a little kid and perhaps if you were wired like me, I'm sure not all of you were, but there was a lot of times as a little kid that whenever my parents would tell me to do something, I just had this like, you know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, <laughs> my mom would be like, hey, Nick, can you help with the dishes? And the thing I literally want to do least on planet Earth is do what you just told me to do. <laughs> and you kind of like despise the commands of your parents. Or your parents maybe would like set up rules or guidelines for you and you're just like, ah, oh, this is a prison. My house is the worst. My parents hate me. And you remember all that like angst as a kid or maybe even as a teenager? I wonder if for you, if you had the privilege and the blessing, and I recognize not everybody has, if you had the privilege of having uh, so, someone in your life to parent you and to care for you who, who gave you guidelines, did you ever have that moment maybe as a mark of your, your maturity or as you grew up where you actually looked back at the commands or the rules or the guidelines and you had this dawning realization like, oh my goodness, they actually said that because they knew better than me and they loved me. Do you know the realization I'm talking about? Where you realize that the rules themselves were not, they were not arbitrary. They were not because they hated you. They were actually because they loved you. And you realize the wisdom of the person who was caring for you in the guidelines that they gave you. This is what we need to realize is true of all the commands of God. No matter how we think about them or what we feel about them in any particular moment, when God says don't do this or God says do this, it is not arbitrary. It is because of his wisdom and his love for you. And so we have this privilege to look to Jesus as we abide in him and imitate the way that he obeyed his father and say, man, I want to obey my loving heavenly father because he's given everything for my salvation and he has graciously adopted me into his family. And so out of gratitude and out of love, I want to obey. Not like begrudging, like, oh, well, I guess I have to obey. He's God. But I want to obey because I know he's wise and I know he loves me. Okay, here's the third and final. This is the ninth in total blessing that comes to us through abiding. When I'm connected to Christ, I have, this is such a fitting way to end, when I'm connected to Christ, I have abundant joy to receive. Abundant joy to receive. Verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you. Now pause. Here's a little Bible study hack for you. You should not open the Bible, and first ask, what does this mean to me? I think we do, this, we do this often as we open the Bible and we read a sentence, and the very first thing we ask is, what does this mean to me? What does this mean for me? And what we're doing when we do that is we're, we're skipping a lot of important steps to understanding 
who the Bible was originally written to, the audience and the occasion that demanded the writing, what the purpose was, what the author was trying to accomplish in the writing. So the very first thing we need to ask when we come to approach the Bible to study it and understand it so that we can live it and apply it, the first thing we need to ask is not what does it mean to me, but what did it mean to them? What did it mean to the people who would have first read it? And the reason that that is important here is because your job as a Bible student is to discover what the author who is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what the author intended to communicate to the original audience so that you might translate that into our culture and our time and apply the same theological principles. Now, one of the things that is so extraordinarily convenient is when the Bible allows you, in a sense, to kind of skip many of those steps and says to you, this is why I am writing this. This is why I am speaking this. And this is one of those places. It's just like a gold mine for Bible students because you don't have to guess. You don't have to do any theological arithmetic. You don't have to make any conjecture based on the context and the history and the geography. You don't have to do any of that. What happens right here is Jesus says, hey, in case you were wondering, this is exactly the reason I have said everything I have just said. And that's like a, that's a hack for Bible study because you're like, oh, it's amazing. Now I get to know exactly why Jesus said all these things. I know his purpose. And listen to what he says. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So the, the purpose, the reason behind everything that Jesus has just said, behind this whole metaphor of the vine and the, the talk about purging and pruning and abiding and bearing fruit and all of this, the purpose of all of it is for your joy. And this is so good. This is so good. I'm so thankful that this is what it's all about. Now, you, you might not think of him this way. I, I wonder if you've ever conceived of God this way, but let me encourage you with this truth. Did you know that no one is happier than God? I don't know how you conceive of God. I don't know how you think of God, but you should, I think, begin to think of him this way. No one is happier than God. <laughs> think about the things that contribute to happiness. God has all of them. God, God is is infinitely and eternally and indestructibly happy for, for many, many reasons. One of which is that his character is perfectly pure. He is unstained entirely from sin or distortion or selfishness or pride or anger or any of the things that so often cause turmoil in our own lives. He's free of all of them. His character is perfectly pure. He is holy. And all of his purposes get perfectly and totally and fully accomplished. He is never thwarted or interrupted in his plans. And he exists, like we've already talked about, in perfect, harmonious relationship within himself. He is happy. And so when Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you, what he's saying is that he wants to give you the very joy that he has within himself. The, the great, eternal, abundant, true happiness, joy that he has, he wants to give to you. And he knows, this is what he says, he says, if I give you my joy, your joy will be full. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I, I would bet so. <laughs> it's kind of like saying, yeah, if you held a thimble and I dumped the ocean in it, your thimble would be full. 
you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense. If Jesus gives his joy to us, then our joy will be full. There will be no corners. There will be no gaps. There will be no places that we can't have it. Our joy will be full. So just wrap your mind around this for a moment as we, as we wind this down and as we prepare to go. Perhaps through all of this, you've kind of been wondering, like, man, what is the point of all of this? Some of this sounds unpleasant. Some of it sounds difficult. Some of it sounds hard to hear. We've talked about judgment. We've talked about pruning. We've talked about all of these difficult realities. We've talked about the long process of growing to look more like Jesus and bearing fruit and obeying his commands. Like, what is the point of all of this? And, and if you can hear me, if you can receive this, just I want you to walk away knowing today that despite what you may have thought to this point, God wants you to be deeply, truly, and eternally happy. I don't know what you think God wants for your life, but one of the things is that God wants you to be fully and completely and forever happy. But he knows that that happiness will only be found in him. And so all of the work of God in your life is to draw you closer to himself because he is the source of all life and joy and satisfaction and abundance. And God knows that insofar as you spend your life pursuing all these other things and looking for joy and looking for fulfillment and looking for abundance and looking for satisfaction in all these dried up wells, that you'll never have it. And so all the work of God in your life, this retreat included, as you've sat under the proclamation of his word, all of the work of God in your life is intended to bring you closer in relationship to him where he knows you will experience true and abundant and lasting joy. And so everything we have talked about this weekend, everything we have covered is for your joy. Being aware of and protected from judgment is for your joy. Being even painfully pruned so that you will grow to bear more fruit is for your joy. Being positionally and progressively purified from sin is for your joy. Bearing fruit and looking more like Jesus is for your joy. Hearing answered prayers and having the proof of abundant fruit and living in the love of God and obeying his commands, all of it, every single bit of it is for your joy. And I am convinced that if you believe that, if you actually trust the heart of God, if you trust his character and you trust his promises and you believe what Jesus says here, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. I believe that if you trust him when he says that, that you will eagerly and joyfully submit yourself to the truths of these passages, that you will open your hands and your hearts to receive the blessings that Jesus has promised only come through connection to him. 
And so I hope if you're learning anything as we've spent this time together this weekend, it's that Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of the blessings of true spiritual life. What you and I so long for in our lives, Jesus can provide it. It is Jesus and Jesus alone who makes a way for us to be saved, for us to be forgiven, for us to be protected, for us to be pruned, for us to be sanctified, for us to be made more like him, and then one day for us to stand in his presence to see him face to face, to hear well done, good and faithful servant, and to enjoy fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore at his right hand in our eternal home with him forever. That's what, that's what Jesus is offering to you and to me if we will simply abide. If we will acknowledge that apart from him we can do nothing if we will believe in, receive from, and commune with our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will experience all of the blessing that he lavishes upon his people. I hope and pray that this weekend you've experienced a little bit more of that blessing and that the Spirit of God will lead you as you leave this place, as you drive down the hill, and that in the coming weeks and months and even years, your life will grow even more vital, even more joyful, even more life-giving as you embrace your connection to the only one who can give you these blessings. I love you guys. It's been so good to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Let me, let me pray for us, and then, uh, and then Mikey will be up here. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for uh, what a gift it is that we have the opportunity to know you. God, you don't, you don't owe us anything. You don't owe us life. You don't owe us your revelation. You don't owe us your grace. And yet you choose from the abundance of your kindness to lavish it upon us. And so we thank you that this weekend we have experienced a taste of your grace, that as we've gathered with your people under your word, as we've lifted our voices to sing, as we've maybe had moments in the quiet and the beauty of all that you've created, I pray that we would remember that every good gift we enjoy comes from you, that you are the source of all life and blessing and joy. God, I pray that you would help us to turn away from the things that we sinfully and selfishly pursue convinced that they will give us life and yet they never do and you will fill us up with satisfaction and gratitude through our connection to Jesus and I pray your blessing on all those who are gathered here I pray that as they go home that you would sustain the work that you have begun here and that you will carry them into deeper affection and more obedience I pray that you would empower them to live on mission so that they would know that their discipleship is not just about them, but it is about the people that you have called them to influence and to reach. And I pray that because of the time that we spend here, the people in our schools and our neighborhoods and our workplaces would know more of the joy and the glory of Jesus because they met us. Help us to be so filled with abundant life that it spills out of us and onto the people around us so that they might have a taste of just how good and glorious you are. God, we love you and we depend on you for all this. We so desperately need you and we trust that we will experience your provision and your protection and your blessing. And we trust you for all of it in Jesus' name. Can you say amen?